Ops. Leave it on. Sometimes we're having some interference things, and you don't have to put this in the sermon thing, okay? You don't, just explaining what's happening. We think we know what's happening, and we're having interference between our wireless things, and sometimes you T-Mobile folks are helping us out with that. All right, we think. I seriously, as SoundTech told us, your T-Mobile folks might be messing us up. Um, we don't know that for sure, but we can give it a shot, right? All right, so um, sorry about that. But anyway, let's stand now. Let's open ourselves, get ready for God's Word this morning. So let's join me as we read it together. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to be picking back up in verse 17 from last week and reading down through 25. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those being per- to, who are perishing, but, those, but to, uh, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is, the, is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to continue as we have been in our um, study here in, in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be here for, for quite a while, and um, let me back up and kind of share where we were last week. Last week, Paul was dealing with divisions in the church, and those divisions arising primarily out of a worldly sense of who are good leaders and who are not good leaders, and there was this combative, uh, competitive idea of, is, am I the Am I of the uh, camp of Paul? Am I of the camp of Apollos? Of course, we'll deal with that more down the road in chapter 3. But that's the idea that's behind it. Some say they were of this group. Some would say of this group. And at the end of it, we saw in verse 17, as we just read here, Christ, I mean, Paul makes it very clear what his ministry is. And so he's not in competition with anybody. He didn't come to be baptized. Um, but Christ sent him to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, Thus, so that thus it would be emptied of its power. This morning we transition into the theme of wisdom because wisdom is at the heart of why the, the divisions exist in the Corinthian church and oftentimes why we find wisdom um, and we find divisions in our churches as well in the modern day or even sometimes maybe in our own church. And so this morning it would be helpful for us to consider what is wisdom. Let's think well about what wisdom is from a definitional standpoint, but then, then go into this text with that, mind, that set up in our minds so that we might think well about what, the Bible, what kind of wisdom the Bible calls us to versus what kind of wisdom oftentimes we try to find in the world. So what is wisdom? wisdom? Well, I got two definitions in my notes that I would share with you. I think are pretty good definitions. Um, first one is it's that quality or state of being wise Knowledge of what is true and right coupled with just judgment as to action. So 
That's a good one. That's a good definition. I think the second's a little better, a little clearer. The soundness of an action or decision with regard to the application of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. I think that's even better. Think about what I just said there. It's the soundness of an action. It's the the actions you and I, the decisions we make in life, they are rooted in some kind of assessment of our experience, some kind of assessment of our knowledge, some kind of assessment of judgment, and we act on that. And so wisdom is the substance of the, uh, the, the actions that we take based on the information that we are making those decisions on. Does that make sense? Are you following me? So then when we talk about wisdom, wisdom is not merely just having a lot of knowledge about something. All right? We think sometimes, and I think sometimes they get blurred with one another. You, you can't separate the two, but they're not the same. Wisdom is very different than knowledge. Wisdom, as one commentator said, as I read this week, said this way, wisdom and knowledge, both recurring themes in the Bible, are related, but they're not synonymous. He goes on and says, The dictionary defines wisdom as the ability to discern or judge what is true, what is right, what is lasting. And knowledge, on the other hand, is information gained from through experience, reasoning, or acquaintance. So what he goes on to say here is knowledge can exist without wisdom, but not the other way around. Right? Knowledge can exist without wisdom, but wisdom cannot exist without knowledge. One can be knowledgeable without being wise. Knowledge is knowing how to use a gun, for example. Wisdom is knowing when to use it. Yes? There's a very big difference between the two. You can have a lot of knowledge about something, but you also have to have no wisdom of how to use and yield it. So it's the same thing when it comes to the Bible and how we use the Bible oftentimes. How we use it and how we use the information we glean from common creation and from the uh, general revelation that we find in Scripture. In fact, we'll deal with a little bit this morning as we get into this. And so one of the issues that Paul has been writing the Corinthian church to is on this issue of wisdom. They have leaned too much on the wisdom of the world rather than on the wisdom of God. And he's going to spend the next three, two or three chapters up through chapter 4 dealing with this issue of learning to lean on the wisdom of God versus leaning on the wisdom of the world. Though God had saved this people in, in, in Corinth, all right, and Paul enthusiastically, you know, uh, believes that, you saw this in chapter 1, earlier in chapter 1, they still resided in Corinth. They still exuded all the values of Corinth. One way you could say it is you can take uh, the Corinthian out of Corinth, but you can't take the Corinth out of the Corinthian kind of thing, right? Or you the country boy out of the country, but not the country out of the country boy. Like, you can't do that. And that's exactly what's happening here is you had way too much Corinth still in the Corinthian church, and sometimes it's the very same thing. Sometimes there's way too American nationalism or, or American ideals or American, or American values, though it can be very good things. There's sometimes way too much of that in the church, and we, get, we can conflate or miss the gospel in some ways. And so last week, as we talked about those divisions I mentioned a minute ago, um, which they were fueled by these worldly views of effective leaders, behind all of that is their understanding of wisdom and how they use the knowledge that they have and act on it in good judgment so that they would exude and display Christ. And they weren't doing that because they would use wisdom from the world to make decisions on things that they should be applying as new believers with the Spirit indwelt in them, the wisdom of God. So at the heart of the division is wisdom. And can we not say the same thing in our day? I mean, just taking a pause for a second, isn't so much of the issues that we deal with today, are they, 
Uh, is it all about not having the right knowledge, or is it all about more about how we take that knowledge and how we're applying that knowledge and how we're using the Word of God and wielding the Word of God? I had the opportunity to speak to the men's breakfast at Providence yesterday, and that's exactly one of the things I challenged the men with. We have a lot of men out there who want to change the world. They want to be men of, uh, uh, of, of God, but they will then take ideals and things from culture and they'll apply them into their lives and they won't wield the sword of God well with that. And so that's, what, that's kind of what's happening here in our day. It's so much of the churches will confess certain truths about the Bible. We'll say we believe X, Y, and Z about the Bible, but we won't really dig in and ask how, what is the wisdom that flows out of that for us as we live that out in the world in which we live. So for the next few weeks, as I said, we're going to be studying up through chapter 4. Paul's going to be unpacking this, and we're going to get into this in so, much, so deep into this idea of wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. It's going to be a beautiful thing. So here's our main idea as we get into that topic this morning. The church, through the foolish wisdom of the cross, exposes the wisdom of the world to be actually, actual folly. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The fact that when we preach the cross, the foolish wisdom of the cross, as the world would define it, we are exposing the wisdom of the world. And that's why the church must yield itself to the wisdom of the cross, must yield itself to the foolishness of the cross at all times. Now, I do need to do a little bit of work before we jump in. Because I, what I don't want us to undersee in this is something, I think Paul's saying something that he's not saying. There's a distinction we need to make. Um, it's this, that wisdom that we're talking about and what wisdom we're not talking about is very key to understanding what Paul's dealing with here. There is a wisdom that arises from common grace, and there's that wisdom that arises from the heart of man alone that rejects common grace and is devoid of the truth of God that they see in special revela- in general revelation in the world as we see it, and particularly as they even avoid it in special revelation. So God has himself revealed himself in two different ways. Most of us know this. It's like Bible 101, but if you don't, maybe this will help you. God has revealed himself in two very, dis- very different ways. There's general revelation, and there's special revelation. Do you know the difference? Both are authoritative. Both are very valuable both to the Christian and to the world, but general, and I want to make sure we say this, general revelation is very, much, is very much a powerful and strong and authoritative revelation. And it's also an act of grace. It just happens to be a common grace. So let me see if I can explain it to you for a minute. General revelation is an act of common grace allowing us, you and me, and everyone else in the world, to interact with the creation as God has created it. In other words, God created the world and he gives us so much about himself, so much about the nature of reality, so much about the nature of life, and we're able to intersect with that in so many different ways, and we find common grace on which to just live this life in a very fruitful way. You and I and our unbelieving friends alike can gleam a lot from general revelation, and we can, we can create fruitful lives. We can create fruitful societies. We can do these kinds of things. And so when we talk about common grace, what we're saying is that it's that that. that information uh, where we can engage with any manner of things like social society, political theory, education, science, medicine. Um, and so what I want to make sure we hear here is that we don't need to assume that when Paul says there's this distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, he's not wholesale rejecting those common grace realms where you and I go into the world with, with good people who go and do research on medicine, they go do research on science, they do research on education, that all of a sudden that's just all self-rejected unless we can put the stamp of Jesus on it. 
God reveals himself in lots of different ways. We don't need to live that way. And in fact, we see that in Scripture, that God himself has said it from the very beginning. He created everything, and everything is under his rule and reign. Everything, we know. But that's different than special revelation. Special revelation is that revelation that reveals something vitally more, way more. It reveals God's saving knowledge, his saving purposes, his saving revelation. Only special revelation or saving grace gives us those specific truths that show us the heart of God and his purposes. While we can glean by observation the heart of God in creation, we cannot know them without God himself revealing the specific truths of his own heart to us in special revelation. Does that, does that make sense? Everyone tracking the distinctions between the two? I hope you are. And so with that in mind, what we want to do is that wisdom of the world that Paul is dealing with here is is that kind of wisdom or insight that arises from the heart of men who only lean on their own earthly experience, their own earthly knowledge, their own earthly judgment, and they hold it up next to or equal to God's saving knowledge or God himself. They're elevating themselves up in their own knowledge and their own wisdom up beside God. So when you take the two and you, and you make them the same, what you're doing is you're saying we can know just as much with or with God in our lives. That's what Greco-Roman wisdom was really all about in a lot of ways. And so Paul's dealing with that specific thing. Look at what he says there in verses 18, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Why? Because at the end of the day, it will destroy them. It says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment and the discerning. I will thwart because he saves us through his special knowledge, the power of God there, it says in verse 18. Paul, in this passage, as he begins this whole study here and transition into wisdom, he wants to show the church, you and I too, even in this day, that we have access to a special wisdom through the Word of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us that runs downstream of our experience of grace, that allows us to avoid the foolishness of the world, the foolish application of wisdom that we receive from the world. That's all my introduction. You can say, all right, thank you. All right, we can move on now. And so what Paul does in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, verses 18 through 27, 25, he divides and he just kind of does this kind of, comp- this kind of comparison of the wisdom the world wants versus the foolishness of the cross preached. And that's going to be our two main points this morning. First, we want to look at the wisdom of the, wor- the world wants and what it actually is. And then second, we'll look at the foolishness of the cross that we preach and why that is the antidote to deal with foolish wisdom. Okay, so let's look at that first point there. We can pick up in verse 20, the wisdom that the world wants. Look at verse 20. It says, where is the one who's wise, Paul, um, uh, uh, Paul says. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so what Paul's doing here is he's challenging the church to see that that religious experience or that wisdom of the wise, it pales in comparison to the wisdom of God in, him, in, the, cross, in the cross of Christ. He's flat out saying this, I challenge you. I challenge you to a duel. Where are you, wise man? Where are you, scribe? Where are you, you guys who have had this superior religious experience? He's talking to both Jews and Greeks, as we'll see in the rest of this passage. And he's just saying, I challenge you. 
Has your wisdom resulted in saving knowledge? And the answer we're going to find is very clear. No. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. I actually like how the NASB 2020 says this. I think it's very clear. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God, ple- God was pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So what is he saying there? All of their attempts at wisdom, all of their attempts at religious experience have come up empty. Brothers and sisters in this room, if you come in here this morning and you have run down the road of your own infinite or your own finite wisdom and you come up wanting, if you've run down the road of all your religious experiences and you found them wanting, it's because they don't save. The folly of the cross saves. And that's why God was pleased with this. It's why the gospel is not just, cannot just jump into any old debate on wisdom and just we can just go hash it out. It just says, look, at the end of the day, it is so countercultural. It is so otherworldly. At the end of the day, it, it, it pales and it, it, is, it, it far outsigns the, the, the finite wisdom, the finite religious experiences of men. And so what Paul's saying here is the final judgment against the wisdom and the final judgment against the religious um, experiences of mankind are deemed insufficient. They are insufficient to offer you and I any real hope, any real substance on which to stand in life. There is no saving power in them. This is a problem sometimes, we mentioned last week, problem sometimes with revivalism and pietism in the church as we look at religious experiences in which to kind of boister our knowledge of the gospel. And, and sometimes the guy works in extraordinary ways. This is to be true, be true. But the reality is we don't look for religious exceptionalism and we don't look for religious revivalism and we don't look for religious uh, scholasticism. It means knowledge of the, just knowledge as a way in which we are saved. You won't get saved by simply reading your big dusty books of doctrine. You get saved by the power of Christ. It's because, and it's utterly foolish to think that that can be true to us as humans. Like we, we would not make it up that way. We'll get back to that here in a second. So to build one's life on the balance of one's wisdom or experience is to build one's life on sand, is it not? Is this not what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 26? The house that's built on sand will, will fall. The wind will blow it down. And so the message of the world... The message of the world is not the same message that is offered in the gospel. Here's the message of the world. As we've already said, they want signs. They want wonders. They want wisdom. They want knowledge. They want experience. It says right there, Jews demand signs and Greece depend on their wisdom. They elevate themselves to the level of God in these things. They think that we can know as much as God, and that would be Foolish on our part to think that we could even come close to the knowledge of God and what God knows on our own. At the core of worldly wisdom, at the end of the day, and we can even just assess this in our own moment, it's just self-help, self-knowledge. All right? I mean, now, it's not wrong to know ourselves. Yes? It's not wrong for you to know you and to understand yourself. That is perfectly fine on its face. But wisdom... 
that is consumed in just us knowing and what we know about ourselves and what we know about the world is the same thing that, we, that, that Carl Truman writes about in his book called Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. In fact, that is the moniker of the world, that we would rise and we would find triumph in our modern selves, that we'd find ourselves in this. I mention this book often because it's such a fantastic evaluation of the modern moment. Truman in this book outlines the development over the past several hundred years where society has shifted its understanding of reality and identity in objective and certifiable and evident truths, self-evident truths in creation, and they've shifted it to a kind of subjective inner evidence that lies at the fickle hearts of men. Follow your heart is the creed of the world. It's the creed of the moment. It's the wisdom of the age. In the end, a culture driven by follow your heart mentality or man's fickle wisdom in his heart is a culture that can affirm, it can celebrate, it can virtually do anything it wants to, no matter how much it may conflict with reality itself. Paul's dealing with the issues of wisdom here in the church because he says your wisdom that you draw from your Corinthian culture is insufficient wisdom. God has filled you with his spirit. God is giving you his word and he's giving you everything you need to know to understand everything properly as his people. Remember, he's talking to the church and he's saying, church, stop using the wisdom of the world. Stop using the, the, the finite ways of the world to, to define true happiness and true purpose in life. And so if you have the follow your heart um, ideal, the follow your heart creed at the heart, at the center of your message of life, what does this mean for your means? Well, it means ultimately that you will search out power, you will search out influence, you will search out, you will search out giftedness and materialism and comfort and pleasure as the means to find your true self. And those are temporary means. Whatever power man has at this moment is a temporary finite power. Whatever wisdom, whatever influence, whatever giftedness man has, or you and I have in this moment, is temporary finite wisdom. See, for the Corinthian culture, we talked about this last week, it was a status and giftedness and influence and power were the epitome of life. Yes? They were the epitome of life. If you had these things, you were somebody. Or you were something. Or you were worth something in the world. And this, again, is not too different from the modern moment, is it not? At the heart of all of our issues when it comes to um, race relations or sexuality or, or, or um, a gender identity, are they not all about, about seeking to gain some level of, of power in this world so that you and I can establish our own identity? That's why critical theory and in any way we want to talk about it, if you're not familiar with that, get with me offline, I can help you understand what that means. It's a, it's a misplaced reality. It's a misplaced brand. It sounds noble, right? Like, for instance, in the issues of race, it sounds noble because who doesn't want to see equality? Who doesn't want to see equal opportunity for all people regardless of, of, of race? Yes, we believe that. I mean, I think everyone who's a human being wants, wants everyone to be treated fairly and, and equally and within the system, but it doesn't actually do anything when it comes to the way the world's doing it now. It doesn't reconcile men, and men to each other. What it does is it further divides them and exchanges one power dynamic for another power dynamic. It's 
Not about balancing power. It's about reversing power. It's about shifting power. It's about, at the end of the day, it's not about balancing power, or actually challenge, but it's about actually challenging and, um, and destroying authority structures so that you and I can be as free as we want to to do whatever we want to do. That's what the world's narrative is today. And I'm telling you, it's not too far away from this Corinthian narrative. It's just not. You might just say it's the rinse and repeat reality that goes through human history. We might use different words. We might use different uh, um, vernacular. But it's the same thing. The goal of the human wisdom is what? Self. Self-branding, self-identity. That's the end of our life. That is what everyone wants in this life. And many of us in here, if you would have took a good look at the hard, hard realities and hard structures and, hard, and the hard times of our life, are they not us not yielding to God and more trying to find ourselves? The goal cannot be this perpetual search for self where we are freed from all those superstructures that are preventing me from being me. Whether it's marriage, whether it's politics, whether it's economics, those things are not keeping you from being you. They're not keeping me from being me. Sin and my rebellion against God is keeping me from being me. And it's keeping you from being you. But it's not just those kinds of things. Materialism and comfort and pleasure are always a historic way in which we deal with ourselves, right? And what we do is we, we promote this message of self and we define it by the acquisition of materialism, materials and comforts and pleasures. So in other words, if the gr- truth you ground your life in doesn't result in some kind of ma- wealth or things, then probably it's not a good truth. That's that prosperity gospel thing that creeps in every once in a while. And by the way, it's not just the prosperity pushers that do this. Sometimes evangelical Christians do it too. And we just live thinking about we've got to come to a certain place or standing in life, and that won't help us at all. The accumulation of these things lures us into a slumber about what life is, and we assume that if life is good, then God is being good to us. And that's not the measure of God's goodness to us. The measure of God's goodness to us is a cross where his son was slain and his son was pulled off that cross and he was laid in a tomb and that son defied death, destroyed death, overcame death in resurrection and offers us resurrection. That, that my friends, is the good life. Earthly blessings are not the signs that we are right with God. And so brothers in here, who of us who are working hard for our families, and we might get into the struggle of like, am I doing well enough? Am I, am, I, am I providing enough for my family? And trust me, I believe most men in this room probably feel this way at different times. Let me just assure you, you are to work hard for your family and you will grind it out. But the measure of your manhood is not what you provide and how big your bank account is or whatever. It's how much you stand before the cross of Christ in humble dependence upon him. I said this to the men yesterday. See, Paul's concern and our concern is to see that, is to see that this dangerous ideologies don't find their root in the church. And it's a problem when they do, right? It's a problem when we resort to the same kind of power-shifting means to promote and propagate the gospel. We'll use things, that we, we get afraid that if things shift too much in our culture, then we won't be free to preach the gospel. That's not true. We can preach the gospel whether or not there's consequences to it or not. 
And so we use power means to propagate the gospel, and our gospel will hopefully, and, and hope that it will inevitably transform culture. But the problem with that is, is what we've done is we've redefined the gospel. When your hope is in your ability to transform a culture, you have actually transformed the gospel in the process because the gospel isn't about transforming culture. It's about God himself fulfilling his redemptive plans to secure a church for himself in this world, and you and I get to preach that good message to anyone we come in contact with. We dare not displace our affections and our dependencies upon Jesus with half or false or you know, ha- uh, gospels. And so when we end up trying to just recover the good things of past generations and past eras because the current era is all messed up, and can we say a hey, amen to that? But when we think that our goal is to recover the goods of past generations on the ground of, and let me say it, bad Bible principalism means you just take the Bible and you just endorse anything that's just contrary to the messed up world in which we live in. That's not good Bible study, friends. Our, bi- our, our world doesn't need just another biblical principle on what it means to be a man or another biblical principle on what it means to be a woman. They need Jesus. The only thing that's going to counter our world is when we live as Christians and when we, be, we are Christians worshiping the Jesus in and Sunday in and Sunday out as God's people. So here's an example. I said this, a part of this to the men yesterday. Every generation has those ideas that we think are in sync with how God would have designed the world, but we ultimately find out that they're really just kind of not really there. And sometimes we will go back, and this is what we do, we'll go back and say, well, if we could just recover the 50s, or if we could just recover the Victorian age for women, Or if we could have more men acting like brooding Vikings. We've recovered something, yes? But the thing about it is, is I don't see any of that in Scripture. There's none of that in in Scripture at all. Let me just be as clear as I possibly can. Men, the world and your marriage and your family does not need more beard-growing Bourbon-drinking, axe-toting, grunting, tattooed men. And I know that like three of those things represent me right now, right? All right? I get it. But that's not what the world needs. It's not what my wife needs. It's not what my kids need. It's not what this church needs. It's not what the world needs. Men and women, they don't need a recovery of the Victorian age for you. Where you walk around all dainty, making sure that you look good for your husband and you offer yourself at any get you're ready to just you're ready to be available in everything and everything at any moment. That's not the recovery the world needs. The recovery the world needs is Christians displaying the light of Christ's redemption to the world. Like look, neither of those things are bad. I mean, obviously I enjoy certain of the things I just described, but they're not the things that save. And they're not the recovery project that we think we need to be part of. When the work of the gospel is reduced to a kind of debate or a fight over recovering this form of masculinity over this form of masculinity and this form of femininity over this, that form of femininity, it is true we have a world that has squashed distinctions between men and women. This androgynous culture we live in is bad. 
But the recovery of it isn't just men. I have a video that I share with a bunch of friends of mine, and it has this guy. He's got a big beard. He's got his shirt off. He's got his pants on. He's got two axes. He jumps off a cliff, flips down into a water, and he's just grunting all the way down. And the tagline says, this is the world the men in the world need. Try it. I don't care. Go ahead. Give it a shot. <laughs> right? But who's going to see Jesus do that? Right? The result of this worldly wisdom is it will perish. And when we borrow on worldly wisdom, even if it's things that could be good, it's good for men to be men. It's good, you know, it's okay to be strong and tough and, you know, carry guns, I guess. Shoot guns. We, we like shooting guns here, right? It's okay. These are, things are fine. But this world's going to fade away. And these fads are going to perish. And the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness on its face. So at the end of the day, the, the, the wisdom that the world wants is actually proven out to be foolish. That's why the cross sounds so foolish to them. And frankly, it's why it sounds so foolish to Christians sometimes, because we don't think it's enough. The reason we go to these other ends in our life to, to try to recover these things or that thing is because we just don't believe that the cross is enough for us. And Paul goes into that. He says, okay, well, let me tell you about this foolish cross in which the church preaches. This is our second point. That it's actually wisdom. Look at verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. What's the message here? The message here is Christ is crucified for sinners. And that means you don't have enough in you to overcome your sinful state. I don't either. Christ crucified for sinners sounds so countercultural because ultimately the world depends on itself to make itself. But the Bible says you can't make yourself holy enough and good enough to stand before God and be sinless. No, you need a Christ who was crucified. That's why it's foolish. Cicero was so offended by this idea of crucifixion, he once wrote, crucifixion is an embarrassment to society. It shouldn't even be uttered on the lips of respectable men. Why? Because it seems weak for a man to give himself up on a cross. It seems weak for men and women to empty themselves of their own ambitions and stand before Christ and say, I have nothing but you. That seems foolish. And friends, in this world, it is exactly that. And one thing I love about Paul is he embraces the foolishness of it. He, 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 he glories in the foolishness of the cross. The cross of Christ offends the sensibilities of man and there's so many people, even people who claim to be Christian, mainline Protestants particularly, they find the idea of God sending his son to die on a cross as a, in a gruesome death as divine child abuse. That's not true. Others find it archaic. And it sounds like things invented by Neanderthal man. And so then they suffer from what? Chronological snobbery. There it never happened here. That the God's people in this church and other churches we help start maybe one day or we partner with will be churches that will be um, remarkably clear about the fact that we embrace the foolish cross. And we're not here 
to engage in your foolish wisdom. We'll gladly, gladly be identified by a foolish cross, though. Verse 24, but those who are called, this is dealing with effectual calling, those who have been saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what is he saying there? He's saying that the crucified cross is the only means by which Jews and Greeks can be saved. So the Jew who wants the sign can't be saved by his signs. The Greek who wants wisdom can't be saved by his wisdom. But God saves those out of the Jews and out of the Greeks. He saves them by two means. It says it right there. The power of God and the wisdom of God. The means of the message of the gospel, the means of the crucifixion of Christ, the the means of Christ crucified is, one, the power of God. That Christ is the power of God. God demonstrates his power through his Son. This is where covenant theology matters. That's why you hear me say this frequently. That I believe it's fundamental when it comes to doctrinal soundness. Because The main covenant that runs under all of human history is the covenant of redemption. And it's to me, as I understand it, the best way to understand the Bible as a whole. We call it the pactum salutis. And this is where the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, make a pact, pactum salutis, with one another to save, to undertake redemption. And it's the narrative that runs under the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that the Father decrees that the Son goes and secures through His life and death, and then, the Father, and then the Spirit fills and empowers and renews. The Son joyfully undertakes the work of coming in the flesh and demonstrating God's power to do what those in Adam cannot do for themselves. Life, a holy life. An obedient life that you and I can't do apart from Christ. And so Christ comes to do for us what we cannot do on our own. And so if we're going to be saved, it'll have to be an exterior power from ourselves in Christ that actually saves us. An exterior pactum, an agreement, a covenant in place before time began so that men can be saved. Mankind is saved only by the power of God, not by our own wisdom, not by our own religious experience. But he also says, Christ, the wisdom of God, that God demonstrates his wisdom through the Son. I mean, think about it. Religion, in terms of its discipline, is the pontification of knowing about God. And all of the things that have been invented in the world, all the other different religions and philosophies that have been populating the world's ideas for as long as you and I can remember them, no one would have written it this way, yes? I mean, that's why it's foolish, right? But it's foolish wisdom because no one would write the story this way. No one would put us as the ones who need help. No one else would put us in a situation where someone has to do something for us in order for us to be our full selves. The gospel message is countercultural, and this is why the world rejects it. If you want to know why the world rejects it, it's because ultimately the world desires us to seek the inner light so that they can find their inner selves, so they can find their own form and their own design for happiness and therefore salvation. 
And so then he ends it with this, these words. For the foolishness of the cross is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The result of this message that flows out of the means of this message is that churches are sound. Churches are healthy. Churches are vibrant. Corinthian church... Paul's talking to, you will be all that you're supposed to do when you embrace the foolish wisdom of God. You and I will never be able to do what we want to do and and see this church do what God wants it to do without it being unilaterally connected to the wisdom of God. God's foolishness is greater than the wisdom of men, and Paul is happy to say it. And God's weakness is greater than the strength of men. Just think about that. No matter what you and I can pontificate about, we can never even come close to the infiniteness of God. And this has everything to do with our methods in our church and our culture in our church that we try to employ here in this church. That's why we take great care to do membership classes well here and try to think about what kind of culture is being produced here. Why? Because to the world... The world produces a self-aggrandizing method. They use self-aggrandizing methods um, to promote their message. They, 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 and sadly, many churches are prone to do the same thing. Build their own brand. Build their own experiences. And they see this and they'll justify this as their desire to spread the gospel. And no doubt, just giving people the best reading, they're They're trying. I've met many brothers. Again, I disagree with them on some of these things. But we don't need those methods. If we embrace the foolishness of the cross, we will embrace the tasks that go along with the foolishness of the cross, like preaching Christ. I mean, if preaching Christ is the only means to salvation, then what other method do we need? Yes? It supersedes the wisdom of the world. The study of an old book is enough. And to study it and come back week after week, exposing piece by piece through it, is enough. To gather and pray this Wednesday night, which, yeah, I hope most of you will be here. It'd be great. It'd be great if we could move from that room down here so that we can pray. You know why? Because it's foolish. It's foolish to pray in the world's eyes. But God invokes power when we pray. It's it's foolish when we just simply want to be a family of families. Sharing meals and giving generously of our earthly goods for the good of this body of Christ. What is that all about? We participate in the same means of grace that the church has been sharing in for centuries. We don't need extraordinary methods to produce extraordinary results. God's never called us to produce any results. He's just called us to be faithful to preaching the gospel and displaying the gospel, and he'll give it the growth he wants in his own time. Paul again says later, I planted Apollos water, but God is the one who will give the growth. Christians are far too easily bored And they neglect the well-worn paths of ordinary faithfulness because they just got to have something new. Christian, don't just be the person who's always looking for something new. There's something wonderful about just doing the same thing faithfully over and over and over again until we die. And then God is the one who... I mean, I, I just... I'm so committed to this message now. I'm so committed to this. Like, 
I don't want anything else. I don't have a desire for anything else. And then just that this church, if the Lord wills it, will be here at least until I'm gone. And hopefully for many, many decades after that, if the Lord tarries. So as we share in the table of the Lord this morning, I just want to remind us that what we are sharing in this morning is a foolish thing. By coming to the table, you're embracing your foolishness. You're, you're partaking in his shed blood. You're partaking in his broken body. It's foolishness, but only through the foolishness of God will you and I find freedom in real life. Amen? Father, help us this morning as we finish up. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you would continue to build your church and grow your church on these very things we talked about this morning. That the wisdom we need is not the wisdom, the finite wisdom of the world, but the wisdom we need is the wisdom that you have in preaching the folly of the cross. May your church be deepened in that, and may we celebrate that as we come to the table here in just a moment. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.